Since the beginning of the church, controversy has swirled around the issue of the proper day for Christians to gather in corporate worship. Is Saturday or Sunday the correct Sabbath? Has this ancient tradition been corrupted and even paganized in the beginnings of the church? Is it necessary to make a choice between these two options, or is there a third explanation that is profoundly deep? Find out on this episode of Revealing the True Light. There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar, and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. What about this controversial issue of when Christians should gather for corporate worship? Is Saturday or Sunday the correct Sabbath? To answer that question, I've got to go all the way back to Exodus 20, the account of when God spoke from Mount Sinai and gave the Ten Commandments, and of course also wrote them with his fiery finger in tablets of stone. I'm going to read Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. He sanctified it. He set it apart as holy. Now, this divine decree is repeated elsewhere in the Old Testament in numerous places. Let's go to Exodus chapter 31, verse 13, where that happens. God speaks to Moses and says, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. In other words, not only did God set the day apart and sanctify that segment of time, he sanctified the people by giving them this practice of worshiping on that day. He was setting them apart unto himself. That way you will know, God said, that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I want you to notice in Exodus 31, 13, though, God put it in the plural. He said, surely my Sabbaths, S-A-B-B-A-T-H-S, you shall keep. Because the word Sabbath is used in two different ways. Not only is it a reference to the seventh day, which is Saturday, the last day of the week, but it's also a reference to certain holy days where no servile work was supposed to be performed. 
where they were supposed to have a day of rest to focus on spiritual things, to focus on God, and to focus on fulfilling certain ceremonial commandments. Also, I think it's important to see right at the beginning that within the framework of the Old Testament way of looking at things, a day begins with nightfall and ends with nightfall on the next day. Because when you find the creation story in Genesis 1, over and over it says the evening and the morning were the first day, the second day, the third day. And so God puts the day or constructs the day differently than a lot of human beings do. We start with light and end with darkness. God starts with darkness and ends with light. Maybe that's a subtle message. But that is the way Jewish people interpret it. When they keep the Sabbath, it starts Friday night at nightfall and ends Saturday at nightfall. And that's the Sabbath day according to the Jewish standard. Now, God promised many blessings associated with keeping the Sabbath. And one of the most beautiful I've found is Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. And he said, If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And listen to this promise. God said, and I will cause you to ride on the high places of the earth. In other words, a higher spiritual realm and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. In other words, the inheritance from Abraham that passed to Jacob will pass to you. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, in the very beginning of the church, the majority of the church was Jewish. The disciples, for the most part, were all Jewish as far as we know. And so they were very in tune with keeping the Sabbath day. It was their custom always to go to the synagogue on Shabbat. And Jesus kept that custom as the Messiah he kept the Shabbat. And I'm sure that even after they were saved on the day of Pentecost, after they were born again, as long as they were allowed to do so, they probably returned to the synagogues and participated in worship as they'd known it all their lives. However, because of the tension between traditional Jews and these Christians or followers of Jesus, they weren't known as Christians right away, but these disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ preaching this message of the resurrection and the crucifixion for the redemption of the human race, uh, more and more they were incompatible and there was a lot of animosity coming from the Jewish people toward believers. And eventually I'm sure they were not able to go to the synagogues. For that reason, they began meeting on the first day of the week. And we find that in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Don't you ever complain about me being long-winded. He preached until midnight. 
And then, of course, somebody fell out of the window and had to be raised from the dead. Uh, and then in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, it said, On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. In other words, Paul was encouraging the Corinthian church when they came together on the first day of the week to take collections for his apostolic ministry so that he did not attach that to his preaching when he came. And that's a biblical way to do it. And I have been to some churches where they did it that way, and we didn't even receive offerings in my evangelistic services, which is an interesting approach. Certainly, the tension between these two days grew. The tension between the two modes of worship grew because these believers in Jesus were very much full of the Holy Spirit, and they were flowing in the power of God, something that was absent from the synagogues. And I guarantee you, more and more, they became completely incompatible. And that intensified as the years passed and as the centuries passed until finally it built to a peak when Constantine claimed to have a Christian conversion, which is debatable and controversial, but he claimed to have a genuine conversion to Christianity and made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. But it began to be mixed and meshed with all kinds of pagan influences. And in 321 AD, Constantine passed the first controversial Sunday law. And that's the law, and I'm speaking from the original document. He said, on the venerable day of the sun, S-U-N, the sacred day of the sun, let magistrates and people residing in cities rest and let all workshops be closed. So he installed Sunday worship. However, it was tied also to Sunday, the worship of the sun, which was a pagan practice. So there was a blending of paganism and Christianity. And many people who believe in worshiping on Saturday as the Sabbath point that out and make that an emphasized issue. And by the way, I want to mention right now that I have many dear friends who believe in Shabbat being celebrated on Saturday. And I have many dear friends who love the Lord with all their heart just as much who celebrate on Sunday. And, and so I, I'm able to fit in with either group and enjoy worship and adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of the day. In fact, in the very beginning of my walk with God, this was never an issue because we had church seven nights a week. We all worked construction jobs in the commune I lived in. It was a Christian commune in Central Florida. And we'd get home, eat dinner, and meet together about seven o'clock and have church. And it never ended till about midnight. And then we'd have to get up five or six o'clock the next day to work hard jobs all day long. But we loved God so much and wanted to dig into his word. One day a week wasn't enough for us. And then I started hitchhiking around the country with another brother in the Lord. 
and we were preaching on the streets. It didn't matter what day of the week it was. Every day we were winning souls. And then I got involved in evangelism, holding revivals and gatherings in churches and tents and auditoriums. And we would go sometimes two or three or four weeks with an outbreak of revival. We never really set aside one day as being a holy day to gather in corporate worship. So from the beginning, it was never really an emphasis with me. It didn't matter that much. I was in love with Jesus 24-7. But this is a big issue with some people. And I respect them because they're lovers of God on both sides of the fence. On both sides of the discussion, there are people that are passionately in love with the Lord Jesus Christ and want to do what is right. And that's why I'm exploring this. Now, Eusebius was an early high-ranking Catholic leader who supported Constantine. And he said this, all things whatsoever that were prescribed for the Sabbath, we have transferred them to the Lord's day as being more authoritative and more highly regarded and first in rank and more honorable than the Jewish Sabbath. Did you hear that? Eusebius said Sunday worship was more honorable than the Jewish Sabbath. So paganism and Christianity got blended together, and the nail in the coffin of Saturday worship happened at the Council of Laodicea in the Catholic Church in 364 AD when Canon 29 was ratified by the bishops who gathered there and the Pope that presided. And this was Canon 29. Listen to it. Christians shall not Judaize and be idle on Saturday, but shall work on that day. So now they're not only saying Sunday is the proper day, but they're saying it's wrong to do it on Saturday. But the Lord's day they shall especially honor as being Christians shall, if possible, do no work on that day. If, however, they are found Judaizing, they shall be shut out from Christ, which was a very serious warning because to be shut out from Christ meant an anathema curse, being excommunicated, cut off from the Lord Jesus Christ if you dared to worship on Saturday as the Sabbath instead of Sunday. Some people feel that at that point there was a complete break between false Christianity and true Christianity. So many people identify Sunday worship, therefore, <clears throat> with Catholicism, and the roots of that being paganism or sun worship. Uh, and I see it a little differently, and you'll understand my viewpoint as we progress. But if Sunday is not a day to worship because of its association with the worship of the sun, then no day of the week is going to be suitable. Not one. Listen to this quote from the Catholic Encyclopedia. The church, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath or the seventh day of the week to the first, made the third commandment refer to Sunday as the day to keep holy as the Lord's day. Wow. Did you hear that quote? The Catholic Encyclopedia, this is a Catholic source, says 
the, the church, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath or the seventh day of the week to the first, made the third commandment refer to Sunday as the day to be kept holy as the Lord's day, the first day of the week. I have three questions. First of all, why is it called the third commandment? According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, because they have a different way of referencing the commandments. They leave out the statement about not making any graven images, and they place the 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 commandment concerning remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the third commandment. Now, for most Protestants, the fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. My second question is, did they have the power as this gathering of bishops in this council, did they have the power to change God's day from Saturday to Sunday? Absolutely not. They did not. And my third question is, what is this day they're referring to as the Lord's Day, quote unquote? Well, let me answer that with another Catholic quote from a website called Catholic Answers. It says, there is a common misunderstanding. Catholics do not worship on the Sabbath, which according to Jewish law is the last day of the week. So now they're kind of backpedaling. When God rested all the work from all the work which he had done in creation, Catholics worship on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, Sunday, the eighth day, the day when God said, let there be light. That was the first day of the week when God said, let there be light. And of course, it's repeated the eighth day and then beyond. The day when Christ rose from the dead, that's true. The day when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles, the day of Pentecost, that's true. That was on the first day of the week. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says the church celebrates the day of Christ's resurrection on the eighth day, Sunday, which is rightly called the Lord's Day. Now, where did they get that term, the Lord's Day? It's only found one time in the Bible, and that's in Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. John is giving some beginning information in the book of Revelation about where he was and when he received this tremendous revelation about what's going to happen in the last days. And he said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, what you see right in a book and send it to the seven churches. That's the only place in the scripture where you find this phrase, the Lord's day. And it has been assumed traditionally that the Lord's day was a reference to the day when he rose from the dead and the day when the Holy Spirit fell on Pentecost, when the disciples in the upper room were filled with the power of God. We don't absolutely have scripture to prove that. Could the Lord's day be a reference to Saturday, the Sabbath? It possibly could. We don't really know. But as I mentioned a while ago, if we reject Sunday being a proper day for corporate worship because of its association with sun worship, then as I said, no day of the week would be acceptable. Listen to this, because each of the days of our week are named in honor of a false god or an object deemed worthy of worship by the Anglo-Saxons. 
the sun and the moon each get their worship on those two days, Sunday and moon day or Monday. Then the remaining five days of the week are named after individual deities. Tuesday was named for the Germanic god of war, T-I-U, it's spelled Tu. And Wednesday was named for Woden, the supreme creator among the Nordic gods. Thursday was named for Thor, the Norse god of thunder. Friday was named for Frigga, the Norse goddess of marital love. And Saturday was named for Saturn, who was not a Norse god, but Saturn was the Roman god of agriculture. So all of those days are really canceled, I suppose, and we couldn't call them days of worship because the very name of the day refers to some kind of false deity that was honored by that day. In fact, in fact, if you're going to go by this standard, you could not have a gathering for worship the entire month of January because January is named after the Roman god Janus that was a two-faced god. And so how could you associate worship with that? So just stay out of church for the whole month of January. No, I don't think that's a correct, uh, a correct assumption to get to, and I don't think that's even logical. Uh, but I want to show you how ingrained paganism is in our culture in so much that we don't even know when we say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Much of the time we're referencing things that have paganism at its roots. Now, what did Jesus say about the Sabbath? Now, Jesus was a Sabbath keeper. He announced his ministry on Shabbat in the synagogue at Nazareth. He quoted from Isaiah 61. So we know he kept the law in that area and every other area. He was a law keeper when it was not commandments of men. And you'll find out as we progress that many commandments of men have been connected to the Sabbath, things that God never, never said. I've been in Israel uh, on Shabbat days, and it, it, it kind of amazes me how far they take it. On Shabbat, the elevators go to every floor. The doors open on every floor in the motels because they consider work to include punching the button to tell which floor you want to get off at. And so the door opens for every floor because it's Sabbath day, the day of rest. There's nothing in the Bible that says thou shalt not punch a button in an elevator because it's the Sabbath day. Who said that was work? Somebody came up with that rule. And that's what Jesus talked about as being the commandments of men. Anyway, Jesus was a Sabbath keeper. He even announced the beginning of his ministry on the Sabbath. So that, that, that was significant. I really believe that. But later on in his ministry, he and his disciples were walking through a field of wheat. And let me read the passage. Now it happened as they went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. This is, this is uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why 
do your disciples do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave to those who were with him. And he said, the Sabbath was made, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Let me repeat that. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Then the final crowning verse of that passage, therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he was saying the Sabbath was made for the benefit of people so they don't work a seven-day work week and get burnout. God wanted to make sure they have a day to focus on spiritual matters and to get reconnected with God and get refreshed. And, and just logically looking at the situation, if you're hungry and walking through a grain field, is it work to snap off the head of a wheat stalk and chew on it? There's nothing in the Bible that says that was wrong, but they had expanded and enlarged the meaning of what God said in Exodus chapter 20. And they could not see that the God who had installed the Sabbath in Exodus 20 was walking in front of them in a human form and adjusting their belief system and rejected him as a result. But see, Jesus came to magnify the law and make it honorable. That's Isaiah 42, 21. To magnify means to enlarge in scope. How did he do that? Well, you can see it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whosoever is angry without a cause, angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. He magnified the law instead of killing, it's having hatred in your heart. He's covering more territory. Then he said, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. And these are commandments from the Ten Commandments. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. So again, he's expanding, enlarging the commandment to cover more territory. He magnifies the law and makes it honorable. Instead of just an outward action, it's an inward attitude of the heart. Then he said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies constantly. He's magnifying the commandments of the Old Testament to cover more territory and move them from external to internal from outward demands to inward transformation. And I would dare to say the same thing is true with respect to the Sabbath and the tithe. In the Old Testament, 10% was required. In the New Testament, Jesus said, forsake all. Everything you own should be on an altar consecrated to God. And it should be his possession, and you're the steward over what belongs to God now. He's magnified the law. And what about the conversation with the woman at the well? She said, we know that in Jerusalem is where you Jews say we ought to worship. And 
We Samaritans say in uh, Mount Gerizim, in this mountain she was referring to, it was Mount Gerizim, is where men ought to worship. And Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. In other words, he was saying, the time is coming when you will neither at this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship, because it's not where you worship that's going to be as important as how you worship and how sincere you are when you worship, and how much worship permeates your entire life, not just during some ritual or some ceremony. Now, Paul was the radical apostle. Paul was the one who was one from one extreme to the other. He was radical when he persecuted Christians, and he became radical in, in promoting the truth, even when it was controversial after he became a believer. And let me read two passages of scripture from Paul. Very important passages. First, Romans 14, verses 4 through 8. He says, Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person, listen closely to this now, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. And then down in verse 8, he said, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So he was dealing with people that were very strong in favor of still pushing the idea of circumcision and others that said it was no longer important. And he was dealing with people that said, uh, we're going to worship on the Shabbat and never veer from that. And others who said, no, we're going to gather on the first day of the week, or maybe they esteemed every day alike. So he was kind of flattening out the curve between the two. He was, he was bringing harmony between the two and said, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Then in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, he said, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The only two times the New Testament refers to the Sabbath are these two passages of Scripture that both make it clear it's not an important issue anymore. And in this particular passage, Colossians 2.17, Paul says the Sabbath of the Old Testament era, which was the only ceremonial commandment, all the rest deal with either moral issues in your interaction with other human beings from commandment four, uh, commandment number five to commandment 10, or the, the true nature of God and the name of God, the first few commandments. The only ceremonial commandment is commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day. And he was saying that was just a shadow of something much more profound and much, much more important to come. And I'd like to reserve the next podcast for talking about how the shadows of the Old Testament are fulfilled in the substance of the New Testament. But let me end by going to two more scriptures, and then I'm going to close. I believe the rest, 
that Jesus gives to believers encompasses more than one day, whether it's Saturday or Sunday. It encompasses much, much more than that. 24-7 of your entire life, he invites you to receive his rest. God rested the seventh day from all of his works. He was at peace. He was at rest. And he wants that rest to enter into you and be a part of your experience. And that's why in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, he said, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to give you a continual Sabbath, seven days a week. You're going to be connected with God all the time. I'm going to dwell in you. I'm going to fill you with the peace that passes understanding. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, and this is so, so powerful. And verse 10, it says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. The Amplified Version says, So then there is still awaiting a full and complete Sabbath rest reserved for the true people of God. And the International Standard Version says, There remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's now and forevermore. It's not talking about one day a week. It's talking about a continual experience of heart. It's good to meet one day a week. It's good to renew your covenant commitment to others in the church. The Bible said, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And so it's not a bad thing, but it's not a religious thing where you have to do it to be right with God. It's something you should want to do, not something you have to do. It's not this legalistic uh, key to a righteousness being attained when your righteousness is in Christ. Now, I want, to, I want to point out, right as I close, that in Hebrews 4, 9, where it says there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. The reason some versions translate that a Sabbath rest is because there's a Greek word, sabbatismos, that is translated rest there. But it really means the Sabbath rest. And it's talking about not only the rest of our eternal destiny in heaven, but the rest we have in God right here, right now, as we journey through this world with him. And we're going to talk more on the next podcast about the shadow being fulfilled in the substance. That's a mysterious concept that's going to put the lid on this revelation. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.